Last week we learned that the qualification of an elder that separates him from other mature, godly, blameless men in a congregation, in addition to having a desire for the work, is that elders must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And it's not just desirable that elders be able to exhort, to teach in sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. It is essential. The overseers of a flock of God must know the Bible and be able to teach it and defend it. After all, the church is fundamentally a teaching institution commissioned to teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Its primary purpose is to teach God's truth, truth that is universal and absolute. It should therefore be obvious that those charged with the responsibility of overseeing a congregation must be able to keep the church free from error insofar as it is humanly possible. You know, freedom of speech is a basic freedom in America, one that thousands have died to preserve. And while there are laws against perjury and defamation of character, in our society, people are pretty much free to say whatever they want, even things that are not true. That is not the case, however, in the church. By its very nature, as a purveyor of God's truth, there can be no freedom to teach things in the church that are not true. And those who intentionally do so must be silenced. That's why we need overseers with the authority and the ability to refute those who contradict the truth as revealed in God's Word. And that's why Titus was instructed to appoint qualified men to be elders, overseers, in all the churches of Crete. And in his letter to Titus, Paul goes on to explain who is to be silenced, why they must be silenced, and how they are to be silenced. We begin by noting who they are. Picking up our study in Paul's epistle to Titus this morning, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and the first part of 11. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. Now, Paul specifically notes three kinds of people who must be silenced. The word actually means to be muzzled, to be bridled. Rebellious men empty talkers, and deceivers. Now, rebellious men are those who refused to submit to authority. 
and encourage rebellion in others, those who stir up rebellion in the kingdom of God. Now, that's not to suggest that anyone who seeks change in a church is rebellious and should be silenced. Some things that are done in a church the way they've always been done probably need to be changed. And positive suggestions offered in the proper spirit should be considered by the elders. But a spirit of rebellion cannot be allowed. Now, submission is fundamental to Christianity in our personal lives and in the church. We are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives are to be submissive to their husbands. Children are to obey their parents. Slaves, employees, are to be obedient to their masters, their employers. We are all to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And Christians are to obey their leaders, those who watch over their souls. There are some in the church, however, who refuse to submit who refuse to acknowledge that God has placed anyone in a position of authority over them, who believe the sheep should be able to tell the shepherds what to do, or to at least ignore them. In Paul's day, the chief culprits were the Judaizers, those of the circumcision, who said Gentiles had to become Jews before they could become Christians. Well, that issue had been settled in 50 A.D. at the Council of Jerusalem. But nearly 15 years later, the Judaizers were still refusing to submit to what the elders and apostles had decided. Those were the men who needed to be silenced in Crete and elsewhere. In fact, anyone who insists on teaching what the elders of a church have discerned to be in error must be silenced. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should reinstitute the Inquisition or burn heretics at the stake. Nor am I suggesting that corrupt leaders should never be questioned or that reformation or restoration is never necessary. Only that false, rebellious teaching cannot be allowed to take place within a local church. Paul said rebellious men must be silenced. But they weren't the only ones. Empty talkers, those who tie up the church in fruitless, profitless, empty talk, were to be silenced as well. Paul called it worldly and empty chatter in 2 Timothy 2.16. And in 1 Timothy 1, 3-7, he had this to say, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. 
But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. You know, some teach just to hear themselves speak, and they need to be silenced, as do those who intentionally seek to deceive others in the church. The Apostle Peter made it clear that there would be false teachers among us who would secretly introduce destructive heresies. And Paul spoke of false apostles, deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ, but are actually servants of Satan. Such deceivers existed in the early church, and they exist in the church today. But identifying wolves in sheep's clothing who have infiltrated the church is not easy. Generally, they distort the truth by teaching half-truths. You know, glaring falsehood is seldom accepted by anyone of faith. But half-truths are easier to swallow and harder to detect. That's why we need discerning elders who are able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And after identifying such men, Paul goes on to give an unexpected reason why such men must be silenced. Continuing on. Because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, I find it interesting that Paul says the reason rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers must be silenced is that they are upsetting families. He doesn't say they must be silenced because they're introducing error or polluting the message or damaging the witness of a church. He says they must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. Now, that's not to suggest that if families are upset in the church, someone needs to be silenced. You know, families can be, become upset for many reasons, some valid and some not so valid. Families have become upset because their expectations weren't met, or they didn't get what they wanted, or they were offended by something that was said, or simply because they felt someone had slighted a member of their family. No church is going to keep everyone happy all the time. In fact, it shouldn't. Sometimes the truth hurts. But if families are being targeted by false teachers 
And the unity of a church is being endangered by false doctrines being intentionally advanced one household at a time. Something has to be done. Someone has to be silenced. This has always been true. But may actually be more of a challenge today than ever before. While, while studying for today's message, I read a familiar passage in New Light. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, speaks of conditions in the last days, and I've always thought Paul was talking about conditions in society at large. The context, however, may very well indicate he was talking about conditions in the church as well. Let me read it for you with that thought in mind. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul said those who were to be silenced in Crete were upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. He even suggested that what the Cretan prophetic poet Epimenides had said applied to them, that they were liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Well, if Paul was telling Titus that men who were liars predatory beasts, and lazy gluttons seeking to fill their stomachs by preying on vulnerable families in the church had to be silenced, it's not much of a stretch to believe he was describing in 2 Timothy 3 the kinds of men who would have to be silenced in the church today. And not only do the shepherds of a flock have to silence such men, they must protect the sheep. From being fleeced by lovers of money who teach what they should not for the sake of sordid gain. And teachers, such teachers, can take on more than one form. There's a column in the paper I've been reading. I really don't know why. I have no investments. And I don't understand what he's talking about most of the time. But I really like Malcolm Burko's column. And he exposed one type of person we need to watch out for in a column that appeared in the journal a week or two ago. A writer had sought his advice on a financial opportunity they had learned about in church. Dear Mr. Burko, several months ago, we bought 1,000 U.S. $1 silver certificates printed way back in 1935 when each of them was convertible into $1 of silver on demand. 
We know that they are not convertible into silver today, but we are told by a wealthy and knowledgeable member of our church that in the next few years, the government, in order to stabilize the dollar, will honor the convertibility of each $1 silver certificate into a one-ounce U.S. silver dollar, which is worth about $34. So we bought the 1,000 certificates from him for $9,000. And we'll be able to convert them into 1,000 silver dollars worth $34,000 in three or four years and make $25,000. Is inflation going to be as bad as some people think it will be? He thinks we should buy more because he believes gold and silver are the best hedge against inflation. And if you agree, we'd like to buy 3,000 more silver certificates from our good friend whom we plan to meet at his home after church next Sunday. We know that God is watching over us and that you will give us good advice. Mr. Burko responded by saying, in part... I'll begin by suggesting that your fellow congregant is a Jesus thief. A Jesus thief is an articulate, crafty, at-will member of an evangelical or missionary congregation who quietly insinuates himself into the church community. His piety is a little overboard, but this cover allows him to humbly donate cash to the preacher and support many of the church's endeavors. With this purchased imprimatur, he preys upon the cupidity, the gullibility, and the greed of congregants and steals them blind but leaves them happy. Now, I find it interesting that a Jesus thief would target an evangelical or missionary congregation as opposed to one within a more organized denominational structure. Maybe Mr. Burko realizes that such congregations are only protected from those who would prey on members by local elders. That's not to suggest that elders can protect members from their own cupidity, gullibility, and greed. But elders should be able to protect the church from those who teach for the sake of sordid gain. And one way they can do that is by overseeing the distribution of funds within a congregation. It should come as a shock to no one There are a lot of religious organizations out there that are looking for money from believers. And they enter into the homes of church members by many avenues, radio, TV, Internet, phone, direct mailings, and word of mouth. Now, some are legitimate, teach the truth, and handle funds given to them wisely and carefully. Others are not and do not. One way... Believers can help assure that money they give to the kingdom is going where it should is by giving through a local church that has elders who take seriously the charge of being good stewards of what is entrusted to them. 
elders who examine the doctrine and practice of those who seek church funds and distribute them in a way that they feel will best benefit the kingdom and fulfill our mission. The church needs shepherds who will guard the flock from rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, and such must be silenced. But how? How are they to be silenced? Let's read on. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Now, notice that Paul says those who teach things they should not are to be reproved. He doesn't say they are to be removed from the church, even though they may in fact be liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He does say, however, that they are to be reproved severely. And the word translated reprove here is the same word we translated refute when speaking of the need for elders to refute those who contradict. Now, to us, there's a difference between refuting and reproving. Refuting carries with it the idea of answering something. You refute someone's argument or position by making a better argument. You respond to error by presenting the truth. You convince someone of their error. Reproving is more confrontational. It's rebuking someone for doing something wrong. It's reprimanding them. Well, apparently the Greeks thought both things could be expressed by the same word. That when someone's thinking was refuted, reproof took place. And when they were rebuked, they would understand the error of their ways. Be that as it may, refuting and reproving is not easy. It entails taking a strong stand against error. It requires confronting the one who teaches it and forcefully pointing out the error in his teaching. And that requires elders who are both able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Doing so, however, need not be done in a way that makes a person feel condemned or unwanted. In fact, Paul had this advice for Timothy. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You know, that expresses beautifully both the proper approach and the desired result 
of an effective rebuke. The objective is not the alienation of anyone. The goal is restoration. Restoring rebellious men, empty talkers, and even deceivers back to the truth. Back to sound faith and positive relationships in the church. That's one of the things the elders, shepherds, overseers of a local body of believers are called upon to do. And I am very grateful that we have elders who are willing and able to do such in our body. We have shepherds that we can trust and obey because they trust and obey the shepherd of their souls. The final word to us in this matter comes from the writer of Hebrews. Obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. If you are willing to entrust yourself to such men and to the one to whom they will give an account, I invite you to come. I invite you to confess your faith in Christ and your confidence in this body of believers. Let's stand.